Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to get time and tide off their chest. The podcast where we get puritanical with the truth and subject myth to the persecution it so richly deserves. I am your regular host, Paul Vavil, and it's just me this week. Well, it's not just me really, because this week I am joined, back in the 17th century, warts and all, by historian, novelist and trustee of the Cromwell Association, which gives you an idea of just how neutral we're going to be, Miranda Malins. Miranda, welcome to History Rage. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Now, feeling angry? Yes, very much feeling angry. I'm hoping to good. get more and more angry as the uh, as our discussion. Good, good. We're looking for a new bar for our rage <laughs> level here. So you came to us recommended by Charlotte White, which I think is surprising given her fanatical sympathies towards the royalist cause. And I'd heard you guesting on History Hack. Could you tell us a bit more about you and your background and how you've ended up doing what you're doing, being where you are? Absolutely. So I'm a historian of the civil wars and the interregnum, the 1640s and 50s in British political history, and uh, of Oliver Cromwell and his family. And you uh, alluded to my uh, trusteeship of the Cromwell Association. So going to come out and proud at the beginning of this podcast, as this is a very safe space for partisanship and rage, say that I'm a full on Cromwellian and <laughs> parliamentarian. Um, right. <clears throat> yeah. No, but in all seriousness, I've been working on this period now for 15 years, 16, 17 years, something like that. Uh, as a historian. And then most recently, I've written two historical novels about the women in Cromwell's family, the Puritan princess and the rebel daughter, um, which I really, really enjoyed. So I'm wearing two hats, really, as a Mm. historian and as a historical novelist. Can I ask you a little bit about the historical novels and uh, and diving into that? Because I remember seeing a talk once with Tracy Borman and she just said, you know, I've done all this history stuff, but it's just great that when you run into that brick wall, you could just make shit up. (laughs) (laughs) Is is that that why a lot of historians do in historical fiction? 
Yeah, it, I, I, it is really liberating, I have to say. I, I describe it as being liberated from the tyranny of the footnote. Um, because <laughs> exactly as Tracy says, you can you can make shit up when you need to. Um, the, the, the particular um, reason why I wrote these novels, actually, was because I wanted to write about the women in Cromwell's family. And as so often with women in the historical records, you know, there just, just aren't enough you know, source materials about them. And I, I toyed with writing a, a straightforward sort of popular narrative history about uh, Cromwell's wife and daughters. But I would have got so frustrated because I'd constantly have to say, well, I imagine that they felt like this, or we think that they were probably doing that, which would be such a tedious book to read. Yeah, <laughs> so, not alone, um, not I least of which to write. And then not least to, to write, exactly. Um, so then I thought, well, hang on, you know, let's, I love historical fiction. Let's just give this a go, you know, Hilary Mantel style and try and write about real people and real events and keep it all as, as accurate as possible, um, as far as I can. And then, you know, plug the gaps with my own imagination. And hopefully it's a new way to bring a, a wider readership to this, um, overlooked period. Hmm. And we mentioned earlier on then that you're a trustee of the Cromwell Association. Now, what is it that the Cromwell Association is there to do? Yeah, so the Cromwell Association is an educational charity set up in the 1930s. Um, and really, it's, it's quite unusual because it's not a fanboy club. And we're very clear to say we're not the Richard III Society. Um, no, no, no insults intended to any Richard III Society members listening. <laughs> sure, you're lovely. But we're, we're, not, we're not a fan club. Uh, we're a group of academics, mostly, and also some non-academics, um, school teachers, um, interested lay people, museum curators, those kind of people, uh, who put on conferences, publish a journal once a year and host events and that kind of thing. We, we um, sponsor schools, um, lecturing in schools and schools, conference days, that sort of thing. So it's it's actually a really great organisation to belong to, um, because especially once I actually left academia after my PhD, it was nice to keep my uh, keep my hand in with this um, group of fellow uh, enthusiasts for the period. But we we all we count many um, royalist sympathisers amongst our, our friends and colleagues. So uh, uh, we're we're all friends. Really. So you even <laughs> let royalist sympathisers into the Cromwell Association then? Well, yes, in the sense that I guess um, some of the people who are in it are just interested in the period and just want to know more about Oliver Cromwell, what he did, um, what was happening in this in this time. Um, I mean, I always, you know, starting, starting to get angry now, but <laughs> I always uh, come across this when I get um, uh, sort of um, assaulted almost at, at kind of drinks parties with, with very angry anti-Cromwell people, you know, who start saying, how can you study him? <clears throat> how can you study this awful man? And, you know, I always say, well, it's not really about whether I think he's good or bad. It's about whether he matters and whether we need to understand what he was doing and what was happening in this period. So, you know, we, we can always fall back on our sort of uh, academic uh, <laughs> credentials and say, you know, we, we are trying to tell the truth as far as we can see it, as Cromwell would say or didn't say what's at yeah. <laughs> So this leads us neatly into the, the rage then. And I, I don't think we need some form of uh, scrying glass to work out where this is going. Um, <laughs> but let's kick that one off there then. So Miranda, with all of the emotion that you feel it, was, it warrants, would you please tell our angry mob, our witch-hunting mob of history ragers, what you wish people would just stop believing? Well, I wish, I really wish for the thousandth time I've said this, that people would stop believing that Oliver Cromwell was a militant killjoy 
who killed the king and seized power for himself and cancelled Christmas. Get in. (laughs) (laughs) That felt good. This is therapy. Yeah, I thought thought it might. Yeah. So, um, well, expand a little on that then. Go on. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, there's quite a lot of really popular and juicy myths bound up in that in that sentence. There's the myth that we often think that the Civil War was a war of Cromwell against the king, and Republicans against Royalists, and that it's all about who gets to rule England. It's a kind of Game of Thrones, Wars of the Roses, power struggle. Whereas really, it's a much more complicated and much more interesting fight, conflict, actually about how England should be ruled, Britain. Not who should rule it, but how it should be ruled. And so kind of treating those in turn, it's Cromwell is not the figurehead of an army, rebellious army, that fights against the king. He's a minor figure for much of the war. Unlike in things like uh, the Richard Harris Cromwell film, which is is wonderful in other ways, and they they, they give Cromwell this huge role at the outset of the war in order to make sense of his, his later massive importance. But for much of the First Civil War, he's just an army captain and then a colonel, and he's raising a local troop of horses, and, you know, he's doing his bit in his own little field. Mm. Um, he doesn't become in charge of the whole army until after the king is executed. And even then, because his commanding officer, Sir Thomas Fairfax, doesn't want to um, go to Ireland and Scotland, you know, to, to fight there. So this is actually, in a nutshell, this is a war, actually a series of three civil wars between the king and parliament. With other, excuse me, with other actors like um, the Scottish army fighting on both sides at different times. So, so it's far more complicated and really interesting than your um, 1066 and all that idea of right but repulsive roundheads uh, led by Cromwell against wrong but romantic cavaliers. So I say also, you know, what's also bound up in that is this idea that it's not, it wasn't a war to abolish the monarchy. Most people fought for Parliament in the Civil War intending to try and keep the monarchy and to keep the king on his throne. True Republicans were a tiny minority um, at the outset of the war, and their influence only spread over the years as the war, as uh, the three wars got more and more uh, nasty and the stakes got higher and higher. Um, Cromwell himself was actually a monarchist and worked very hard, really, until the 11th hour to make a peace deal with, with Charles I, with the king even endangering his own reputation, even his safety um, within the army. And I think I think really a lot of this comes down to the confusion that we have about Cromwell in particular's views and also the, the melting pot of ideas that are all being thrown around during this amazing period. Because Cromwell was very was a pragmatist, not an idealist. Uh, he wasn't, as he said himself, wedded and glued to forms of government. Yeah, he he cared about kind of what what could be workable rather than you know a, a perfect a perfect you know ideological um, utopia. And actually, for most of his his life, he believed that a traditional monarchy, um, a king, uh, a house of commons, a house of lords, was the best way of governing and was um, uh, the most stable form of government. Which is why he was tempted to take the crown himself when people tried to make him king later in his rule. Uh, so yeah, there's a few there's a few chunky myths in there that we can go down on. Yeah, so it's it, it's not Cromwell versus the king, it's not Republican versus royal, and it's not about who is in charge, it's about how that works. So Absolutely, yeah. in in terms of that then, what what would parliament's ideal outcome of the war of three kingdoms 
lest Kirsty McKenzie come and slap me for calling it the English Civil War. <laughs> Um, quite right, quite yeah. right. What, quite what right. would uh, what would Parliament's <laughs> ideal outcome at the start be? How are they looking for it to be rolled? Yeah, well, that that's that's a really great question, and I guess what happens is there's a constant. The goalposts are constantly shifting. I think at the very beginning of the war, the idea is really to find a. Uh, they've exhausted all um, civil means. In, in Whitehall, in Westminster, Parliament has to kind of keep the king within the limits of his constitutional role and within his power. And he is thought by members of Parliament who fight for Parliament to be becoming tyrannical and becoming a despot and abusing his, his role as king. But the war is very much framed in terms of a war against, almost against the king's person almost against the advisors of the king it's this old idea that the the, the the king is badly advised and the king himself is still a wonderful person <laughs> but it's not against the office of king so i think what most of the leadership in the parliamentarian side in the war at least in the first few years is hoping is that they will put put, put a sufficiently good um, showing on the battlefield to show king charles the first that they mean business and that they can't be run ridden roughshod over and to bring him to the negotiating table and then to all get back to Westminster and to um, put in some of the reforms you know from a year or two earlier that, that Parliament had been wanting. Yeah so they'd never really planned to have three civil wars they'd never really planned to be deposing no. and killing a king. Exactly and, and this is such a great example and there are so many other examples in world history aren't there of civil wars and revolutions whether it's in France or Russia or America which take on their own momentum and take the sort of coalition of interests who form to tear down something or to change something that they don't like. That coalition of very very disparate interests kind of consumes itself almost as the years go on and as the stakes get higher and as everything gets further out of control there's much more violence than anyone expects it's the higher body count yeah. there's, there's more on the line and in this case um, I think Charles I surprises Parliament by and Parliament's army by being really quite intransigent and double dealing in his negotiations with them after each war so there is a real, real shift of opinion between the First War and the Second War. So the First War is 1642 to 45, 46. And, you know, I, I like to say to people that that's almost quite a civil, civil war. <laughs> I mean, there are a few atrocities and, you know, it's, it was obviously not fun to be caught up in. But there's still, you know, really funny sort of gentlemen's agreements and, and civility going on there's there's op opposing commanders on either side writing lovely friendly letters to each other there's the uh, prince of wales the future charles ii and the duke of york being sent a hamper of of food into the besieged oxford uh, the general fairfax commander of the parliament's army sends them food because the, the because the um city that he's besieging is you know running low on supply so it's all quite civilized and to a degree I'm, I'm, I'm obviously sort of um, making it seem more simple but but then the problem is that they try and form a peace come to a peace agreement with the king at the end of that war who has been roundly beaten in the battlefield and he plays the side plays the army against the parliament he plays them all off against each other he invites the scots to come and come and invade england on his behalf and basically tips the whole country back into a second war yeah and at that point, the uh, you know the, the the iron really enters into the soul 
of a lot of parliamentarian leaders who feel very, very angry at the loss of life that this leads to. And, the, you know, and this is when you start to get these ideas that the king actually is a traitor, is a man of blood, and perhaps, you know, shock horror might have to be removed, even possibly executed. So, so following the civil war and the execution then, like we said, Cromwell's not planning to kill the king and take power. So, so how does Cromwell end up? coming to power? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that it's not immediate and um, by, by any means. So the when the king is executed, there's a there's a sort of um, flurry of activity to, to abolish the monarchy, abolish the House of Lords, and declare England, you know, uh, and, and by extension Scotland and Ireland, but you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, into a commonwealth, into a, into a republic. And it's ruled by a council of state and by uh, parliament, mm-hmm. um, by the rump of parliament that still remains, who were happy to try and execute the king. And a large number of very, very busy committees. <laughs> There's a lot of committees yeah. and everything you can possibly imagine. But if, if we think about Cromwell himself, he's actually away from central government for the first few years of this new regime because the government sends him first to Ireland, infamously, and then to Scotland to suppress the sort of royalist rebellions that are happening in those two nations and to safeguard this new and uh, fledgling regime from the threat of invasion yeah. from uh, Charles II, who's proclaimed himself to be the new king in exile. So Cromwell doesn't actually return to London until a couple of years after the king's execution and the and the creation of the Commonwealth. Um, and he, he comes back into London kind of like a triumphant Caesar, uh, with great acclaim and fanfare, having kind of conquered Ireland, conquered Scotland. But he, he swiftly becomes very disillusioned by what he sees as the indolence and the lack of progress on the kind of key reforms that, that he believed that his side, Parliament's yeah. side, had, had fought the war for. I mean, who'd have thought you leave a ton of committees and they achieve <laughs> I nothing? I mean. And they wouldn't achieve anything. Totally true. It's totally exactly right. So he basically comes back, this all-conquering kind of military figure, and goes, "Oh, hang on, what, what are all, what are all these, uh, you know, uh, fat, fat guys? He's very rude about them all sitting around. What are they actually doing? They're just making money. They're just drinking. They're just, you know, whoring and all these things he accuses them of. Um, and then, uh, you know, and, and as, there's this fear at then that there's a, there's all, we're almost slipping into a kind of accidental tyranny by the House of Commons, because there's now no longer a House of Lords to balance it out. There's no longer a monarch. And there's a long argument about the fact that the House of Commons is reluctant to um, uh, dissolve itself and put itself back to the people, um, or at least the people who at that point in time could vote, which is quite a narrow selection. Yeah, there's about 14 of them, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. You're thinking of the Black Adder episode where it's, you know, like, one man and his dog, basically. Um, but yeah, <laughs> officially speaking, Parliament's trying to keep itself in power, the, the House of Commons, which the army and Cromwell really, really don't like that. They, they, they really want Parliament to dissolve, put themselves to fresh elections, get a whole lot of fresh people in and kind of start again. Um, so anyway, uh, this, this argument goes on and on and on. And eventually there's this um, time in April 1653 where it appears to Cromwell and his, his mates that um, Parliament is about to rush through some legislation which is going to keep them sitting forever. And Cromwell kind of marches over with his soldiers into the House of Commons and expels 
Parliament, which is obviously kind of awful and awfully uncomfortable and hugely, you know, reminiscent of Charles I yeah. walking into Parliament and and trying to arrest the five members, which is one of the events that kicks off the Civil War. So it, it it's been very bad for Cromwell's reputation. I put my hands up there with that one. But yeah, anyway, uh, sorry, long answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll end very quickly. But again, again, he doesn't seize power for himself in that instance. He doesn't set himself up that night as a kind of dictator. He, um, his various colleagues in the army and his MP allies try a, a few different experiments. They establish what's called a nominated assembly, which is a whole lot of godly do-gooders from around the country who are all summoned, nominated and summoned to come and govern. And rather like you said, you know, that committees couldn't do anything with this whole lot of, you know, godly kind of <laughs> saintly people, saintly men just were completely hopeless. And they, they, then they fall apart. And then eventually in December, so sort of six months later, the army leadership come to him and say, look, this isn't working. This is all a complete mess. We've drafted a new constitution called the Instrument of Government um, with a whole new idea, which is we have a Lord Protector who's like a king and we have a council of state and we have part regular parliaments. You know, w- will you take on the job? Will you will you be this Lord Protector chappy? Um, and Cromwell says, uh, yeah, OK. So... You know, he does come to power, um, but very, it's very much not that Cromwell kills the king in order to pinch his throne. Yeah, it's it's not an immediate military coup. It's it's a military coup that he didn't direct, really. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so he serves until 1658 as Lord Protector for Life, uh, mm-hmm. at which point yeah. it is passed to his son, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, Richard, yeah. Okay, there isn't a general election during that time. Isn't he just being another monarch? <laughs> no, I know, I know. It's, it's such a good question. There are, there, on the general election point, I mean, we are back to what what kind of democracy there was at, in this period at all. Um, and there are regular, there are two, there are a couple of parliaments that sit while he, that he summons while he's Lord Protector. Uh, one of them actually has, uh, both of them actually have the first representatives from Ireland and Scotland to come and sit in Westminster, the Westminster Parliament, which is, it is quite a good thing. But yeah, in, in general, he's very much so king in all but name, especially as the years pass. I mean, he's addressed as Your Highness. He lives in the royal palaces. Um, he has a court. It's absolutely what we would recognise as, as a, as an early modern monarchy. But it's just, it's really interesting kind of um, little little tiny period of British history these five years, because this looks like a monarchy, but there's some really key differences. Okay. So he's actually ruling under the only first and only written constitution, constitutions that we have in Britain. So as you know, we don't have a written constitution today. We never, ever have done. Um, it's all based on, you know, custom and precedent and, you know, um, etc. But Cromwell's actually constrained by a proper written constitution like, like the one in the United States. Then he also has a powerful council of state, which is far more powerful than the kind of council of states that we remember sitting around Henry VIII or Elizabeth I. Um, because Cromwell's council, <clears throat> that's actually written in the constitution that they have to agree to certain decisions of his, such as waging war. He can't just do uh, as Henry VIII you know, wants to do and kind of yeah. go off and fight the French because he's, you know, uh, pissed off by the by the French king. 
Um, well, he's English, and that's what the English do at the time. No, isn't no, it? exactly, <laughs> exactly. So he's a bit more, he's a bit more constrained on those kind of key decisions. And you know, he has he has regular parliaments, although he has a bit of a bit of a torturous relationship with those because they they never live up to his expectations. <laughs> <laughs> and they keep a lot of monarchical kind of symbolism and ritual, but it's integrated with a republican imagery and a sort of secular language. So it's it's a really weird sort of mishmash. Um, and this tension that like becomes clearer as the years pass, as these five years go on, and really two sort of factions crystallise in the court. There's the army um, who fought the war and who were much more kind of militant and, and a bit more Republican. And then the um, civilian politicians, the MPs, a lot of them, and courtiers, who um, are a bit more conservative and who like the idea of having some peace and having stability and maybe having the monarchy back. And, you know, that's why they try that that faction try and make Cromwell king. They try and off, they offer him the crown. And he says no, because he thinks it would be hypocritical um, to accept it at this point. After all this. You but know, to be oh, fair, he's done everything Charles I has done so far. And yet, but there's a line there that isn't crossed. Yeah, yeah, there's a line there where he's just like, actually, you know, that's not cool. Um, and he, he plays a political blinder, actually, because he basically says, no crown, but I'll accept the rest of this new constitution. <laughs> so actually, he, he, it's kind of win-win for him. Yeah, but it, it is a bit of a turning point, though, and historians always debate this, whether he had become king, you know, whether it would have made his regime more stable, because actually, you know, anyway, we, we get the king back later on, but I'm sure we're going we're gonna to come on yeah. to that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, so, you often think of Cromwell as cancelling Christmas, as just being miserable, as <laughs> being absolutely puritanical and dressed in black with a big wart on his yeah. nose, huge black hat yeah know. and uh, and then we think in term as well uh, throughout the interregnum as it being witch hunts and puritanism and misery until we get the king of bling come and rescue us <laughs> what what is cromwell terms personality and 17th century puritanism actually like yeah it's, it's just such a great question because you know, you're really getting at there, uh, you know, this wider myth and actually a real bee in my bonnet, which I get really cross about. Go for it. Yeah, I will. Um, which is this idea that the 1640s and 50s are this kind of masculine, repressive, superstitious period, as you say, with witch hunts and, you know, nasty men um, who, who cancel everything and don't want any fun. And then suddenly, miraculously, the 
king comes back in 1660 and it's all it's all light and fun and brilliant and you have Samuel Pepys buzzing in at coffee houses and Nell Gwynn on the stage <laughs> as uh, uh, whereas actually is huge hugely much more continuity from the 1650s 40s and 50s into the 60s than anyone ever ever accepts but uh, and a lot of the the people these are these are also all the same people. I mean, you know, we we live in the real world. You know, you don't suddenly wake up one morning and say, "Oh, hey, we're in a new period now." <laughs> you know, we've got to all behave differently. Yeah, we didn't import um, these people from you know no, the continent to to be no, all and, like- and so yeah, and so many of the kind of tropes that we associate and the people and the figures that we associate with the Restoration, people like Peeps. You know, Pepys began his civil service career um, under Cromwell. In fact, his mentor, um, the Earl of Sandwich, was one of Cromwell's Council of State. Mm. So, and um, Christopher Wren is given his first big break by given a by being um, given the chair of astronomy at Gresham College. He's nominated for that by Cromwell. So, this is Wren who designs Charles, you know, Charles II's London after yeah. after the Great Fire. So, you know, we, we we have to, and the Royal Society again, which is so closely associated with the Restoration. The, the men who form the Royal Society are meeting in the 1650s under Cromwell. So, you know, yeah. we, we have to, we have to be a bit more fluid about, about this, as with so, so many other periods in history, we have to be a bit more realistic about it. Um, but yeah, going back to your question, actual question about, um, Cromwell and Puritanism. So, you know, P- Puritanism, I, I guess firstly, Puritanism isn't kind of one thing at this time. Um, the Elizabethan church settlement has kind of been exploded apart by the Civil War. And by the Stuarts and then the build up to the Civil War. And there's a whole lot of splintering sects of, of Puritanism, the kind of non-conformist traditions that we, we've seen ever since. All Puritans tend to share a few key beliefs, you know, the primacy of God's word and the Bible over, you know, trinkets and mm-hmm. uh, church ritual and bells and smells and whistles and stuff. The importance of a direct relationship with God that's very personal and not mediated by the clergy. So, that, you know, you get all this reading of the Bible in English and, you know, praying directly to God and everything. And in terms of, of, of Cromwell himself, um, so he's a, he's an interesting mix because he's he has this very intense kind of conversion in the 1630s, uh, years before the war, to being, you know, really, really very intensely personally kind of religious and puritanical. Um, but that's within him, that's layered on top of a very traditional conservative kind of outlook of a typical country gentleman so you know hence the fact that he he likes hunting and hawking and drinking and smoking and you know he wears nice clothes yeah and and that that's not deemed to be in any way um hypocritical or or mutually exclusive with having a close relationship you know with with god this idea of the kind of black coated black hatted um, mayflower kind of puritans isn't very accurate really and if you look at the picture, the portraits of Cromwell and his family, they're all dressed in beautiful silks and satins with pearls. And um, but again, this 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 always it always comes around to bite him because whenever anyone does notice that, which they rarely do, if they do notice it, they then say, "Oh, what a hypocrite!" <laughs> Whereas actually, you know, it's just a sign of the kind of Puritan he is, which is actually really quite a moderate Puritan. So he loved music. But passionately, and had his own like musicians at court. Um, but he he didn't like music in church because he felt that it distracted from preaching and from the Bible. So again, he gets this reputation as being this philistine 
um, who, who cancels all music, which is, isn't the case. He just wants it taken out of the church. Yeah. Similarly, he loved horse racing. He was a massive horse, horse, horse mad man, cavalry man. Loved horse racing, horse breeding, hunting, hawking, etc. But again, horse racing meets get cancelled during the 1640s and he continues that in the 1650s on and off um, because they're a notorious venue for royalists to gather and to plot against the state yeah. um, and that's a similar the similar beef he has and, and his government has with the theatres is actually um, I mean it's partly because they're you know quite drunken and licentious but it's also it's because they're a great venue for royalists to come and to plot um, so a lot, a lot's got muddled up here about what he did and didn't believe, and you know what what he wanted to uh, cancel or, or get rid of. He didn't himself personally cancel Christmas. <laughs> uh, Parliament cancelled Christmas in the 1640s during the war, um, and he just never reversed it. I mean, I don't. He didn't celebrate Christmas himself, but you know we really don't have much evidence of him banging on about it or anything. It, it really does seem to be a bit of a non <laughs> non issue. <laughs> So you know, l- l- long issue, but you're you're tapping long answer, but you're tapping into my 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 rage, you know, my uh, pressure points now, which is great. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier that kind of, uh, and it's a thing that I have to say I've never really put two and two together until here. But you you talk about that kind of like Mayflower Puritanism that everybody thinks of now. If I'm if I'm right, it's like the the Mayflower Mayflower swanned off in about. 1625 1630 yeah. something yeah. along those lines it's not exactly, yeah. not my so if that sort of puritanism was all over britain and ireland at that point they wouldn't even need to leave would they no no you're quite right i mean you know what we're talking about here and it's a really good point uh, when we're talking about all these puritans and these different sort of sex subsets within puritanism they're still a minority, as you say, within the wider population. You're absolutely right there. And so, uh, and, and this is this is the big issue, you know, one of the huge issues of the Civil War and why um, the common, the interregnum regimes can never quite kind of get traction and make themselves work. Uh, it's because fundamentally, you know, the vast majority of the population aren't on this kind of godly spiritual <laughs> journey that Cromwell and a lot of the other army and parliamentarian leaders believe that England is on. You know, so they get more and more kind of providentialist as they as they win more and more military, astonishing military victories, military battles. I mean, Cromwell is undefeated in the field, which given that he has no he had no military training and then he became a soldier in his forties is, is quite astonishing. And all of these victories and all of this kind of drive and momentum convinces them all that this is the plan that God has set England upon. Yeah. And so they have to kind of follow it wherever it goes. But taking the rest of the population with them, that's a, that's a major challenge. Well, I would say all the way throughout history, whatever revolution that you wish to point to, I suppose, you know, we're, they'll go in with, right, we're going to overthrow the monarch or we're going to overthrow yeah. the monarchy. Or we're we're gonna we're, we're gonna execute that person, whether, whether it be the English Civil Wars, whether it be the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Philippine deposing of Ferdinand Marcos. You know, they all have one goal. And when you get to afterwards, you suddenly find that you've got this disparate group of two hundred different viewpoints that all got different <laughs> exactly. plans, and it's all going to fall exactly. apart. Exactly. And this is no different, is it? This is no different. This is the best and one of the you know, earliest examples, in a sense. Um, certainly in terms of the later kind of Western Western um, 
revolutions that we, we, we think about, the French, the American, etc. It, it's exactly that. It's, you know, uh, it, it comes down to how much easier human nature and how much easier it is to, to get a whole gang of people with different viewpoints together in opposition to one existing thing that you all pull down and but then agreeing on what you want next and instead is is the nightmare. I mean, I wrote a lot of um, not not not, uh, not 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 to bring bring politics into this and add to the rage. Um, but you know, a lot of us historians of this period um, loved well, I say loved, but enjoyed the kind of constitutional mayhem of Brexit of the Brexit arguments because they they pulled in this period so into such sharper focus mm. because it again was a lot of these same questions about you know coalitions of interests and parliament versus the people notionally and popular sovereignty and you know what you do what you replace with you know you want to leave the eu and then what do you replace it with and what relationship do you replace that with that's where it got really knotty yeah it's always going to be well if the interregnum isn't dark and miserable and puritanical uh, and after going to all the trouble of abolishing the monarchy, why the hell bring it back? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a question that we ask ourselves. I mean, every let me let me let me throw a caveat in there. I appreciate uh, what you've said already in that yeah. you just couldn't find any real way of governing without kind of Cromwell being that figurehead, and then he dies. Royalist cheer, and Richard Cromwell comes in, who is let's be fair, next to useless. And there are a whole other pe- load of people that, that you could give that responsibility to. Hell, yeah. let's go as far as even elect one. But no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Come back no, in with Charles yeah. II. Why? I know. It, it's, and, and, you know, there are discussions about this in 1659 about, and there's, uh, but, but again, it's this, it's this age old problem we've just been discussing about this power vacuum that, that emerges. And, you know, once Oliver was really holding it all together, really. And, you know, the there is this deep, deeply held kind of affection amongst um, the population, but but also just the kind of, um, I guess, the, uh, the political system, really, for monarchy. You know, the monarchy is so closely bound into the legal, the cultural, the religious precedence and the sort of shared understanding and cultural understanding of the nation that it's really hard to pull it out. It's, it's, it's tied into everything. So, I mean, I, I think that's why, you know, they try and make Cromwell king is, is, is that because a lot of politicians at the time could see that. Cromwell himself could see that. So, you know, as you say, he holds it together. But when he dies, um, his, uh, his son, oldest son, Richard, takes over. And, you know, with, with, my, with my revisionist hat on, Richard isn't as kind of horrendous and, 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 and awful as his tumble-down dick um, name <laughs> would suggest. Uh, he, he gets off to a pretty good start. In fact, so much so that the Stuart court in exile is really upset when Oliver dies and, uh, uh, and the Earl of Clarendon, who's Charles II's chief advisor, writes despairingly that, like, basically kind of not a dog barks. It's so, it's so, the, so smooth a transition from Oliver to Richard that they all despair. And there is a sense amongst the Stuart court that actually that's their lowest moment because um, actually uh, the House of Cromwell has moved on to another generation and actually no one's even blinked about it. So, you know, the first few months it seems to be all going well, but then again, you know, the revolution's children eat themselves. Um, Richard's not his father. And, you know, fundamentally, 
Oliver Cromwell had always struggled with how to integrate the army, this massive standing army, how to kind of integrate it into normal civilian life. And it's just a problem that that he, he can never find a proper answer to. And the army doesn't trust without him there, kind of in the middle, keeping everyone happy. You know, he, he uh, the army don't trust the parliament, the parliament don't trust the army, the infighting comes back. Um, and you get this bizarre situation where almost... Uh, where lots of different people of, of formerly very extremely different views from royalists through to kind of levellers, you know, mm. uh, on the ver- very furthest ends, meet round the back <laughs> in agree in opposition to um, to the Cromwells and then later to any notion of a republic and all coalesce you know, around the idea that actually I think we need to have the king back. But again, again, um, just, just, just to finish on that point, it's not, I don't think we can any more say that there is a sort of what was known by historians for years as a high road to restoration. The restoration of Charles II was n- not at all inevitable. Yeah. Um, he, you know, it, it worked out well for him, basically, that all of his enemies started eating each other and that, um, you know, key people like General Monk, <clears throat> um, who's up in Scotland uh, and who's a Cromwellian and very close to Cromwell and his regime, decides to come down and, um, you know, uh, throw his lot in behind a free parliament, a new parliament coming back, um, fully in the knowledge that that new parliament would be quite royalist in its leanings, and then that parliament would bring back the king. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big old, it's a big old mess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, about four months ago, we had Steve Carter on talking about, well, part of the aftermath of the Civil War, which is the Monmouth Rebellion. And he said a lot of what we think about Monmouth is a massive character assassination, courtesy of James II. (laughs) Yeah, I can accept that. How much of what we think about Cromwell can we blame Charles II for? (laughs) Sorry, Charlotte, but I'm going to diss the guy. Sorry, sorry, Charlie. Yeah, sorry. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure she'll get her own back. Yeah, a lar- a large amount. I mean, you know, we, we, you can't get round the fact that when Charles II is restored, you know, there is an act of indemnity and oblivion, <clears throat> which which literally whitewashes the last eleven years. It makes it illegal to talk about the war, um, and Charles II backdates his reign by eleven years to the moment that his father was executed in sixteen forty nine. So, you know, official the official records sort of wipe this period off the map. Um, and then, of course, you know, Cromwell's, Cromwell's corpse, his actual body is, mm. is exhumed and hung, hung, hanged and drawn and quartered in this gruesome fashion, which, which by, by the new regime. And, um, you know, they're, they're then launches into decades and decades and decades of, as you say, kind of character assassination by, uh, his, by the enemies of Cromwell, but also people who are trying to curry favor with the new regime, with the king. You know, everyone lays into him, basically. Uh, although, although as a tiny little aside, it's quite interesting and something that I studied in my, uh, I wrote about in my PhD, is that Cromwell remains this kind of measure by which Charles II is is um, compared throughout Charles II's reign. And as the gloss falls off Charles II after the first few years, and a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, people get, you know, find he's actually you know not particularly a good king they don't like him very much they don't like his decisions they don't like his profligacy they don't like his 
licentious court, etc., etc., you start to get these wonderful murmurings in the records, in sources, in diaries, and in parliamentary debates about, oh, it wouldn't have been like this in Cromwell's day, or, yeah. or old, old Oliver wouldn't have done that, or <laughs> which I find really amusing. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it was a, it, he suffered from centuries of sort of character, officially sanctioned character assassination. And actually, he had a big revival under the Victorians. Um, his reputation was hugely uh, resuscitated by them. He became a huge um, uh, uh, hero for a lot of Victorians, which is, you know, uh, uh, when the statue of him was put up yeah. outside Parliament and that kind of thing. And again, so his, his reputation has wildly fluctuated. It's really, really, it's really, really interesting. Um, but this, this a sort of official um, animosity or, 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 or kind of uh, oblivion <laughs> against Cromwell kind of continues to this day. I mean, if you go around the historic royal palaces, if you go to the palaces he lived in at Hampton Court or Whitehall or Banking House, there's barely a mention of him or his court or his regime. Yeah. You know, there's, lo- there's lots of incidents throughout the um, 20th century of mon- you know, various monarchs and various, you know, um, putting their foot down and saying that you know Cromwell couldn't be part of the story. I mean, uh, Churchill, when he's first Lord of the Admiralty, um, tries to name a battleship Cromwell and it's vetoed by by the palace. <laughs> and, you know, his portrait of Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge, his old college where his head is probably buried, um, has curtains around it so that if a royal visitor comes to the college, they can draw the curtains and they won't have to look on his face. Uh, even, <laughs> even the last couple of years... There's a series of Penguin Monarchs books, slim biographies of every monarch, um, and Cromwell's included, which is which is great because I mean most of the time he's missed off. Um, but his book has a black cover, and all the other monarchs have white covers. <laughs> so I mean, literally, this is what he's up against. You know, this is this is what he's up against. I also feel, in all seriousness, that we as a country have a sort of psychological block on this period. Um, we don't embrace it the way the Americans do with their revolution, the way the French do. We, we, it's almost like we don't know how to fit it into our neat national timeline. You know, our, our wooden ruler mm. with all the kings and queens on William, William, Henry, Stephen, Henry, Richard, John. We don't know what to do with this, this, this blip, this anomaly. Yeah. And it's a huge, huge shame because we miss so much because it's, it's so rich and it's so important as a foundation of, of the modern world that we live in in Britain today. It's the beginning, it's the first age of journalism, it's the first age of, uh, you know, of, of as I say, these, these really important arguments and debates with Thomas Hobbes, with John Locke. You know, a lot of what we argue about today and think about, a lot of our mental framework for the world that we live in now is really created and sculpted in this period. So I think it's a great shame that we, we overlook it the way that we do. Is there a case to say that where you mentioned that the Americans really embrace their revolution? Or at least we think we've got some people coming on to do talk American revolution. Oh, yeah. But uh, could it be a case of because they actually got the revolution that they wanted and it stuck and we didn't, yes. we went back. Yes. That's that's really why we cut this out. I mean, if the Americans yeah. had got to the end of the Battle of Yorktown and gone, actually, yeah, just no, <laughs> hats off, we tried, but this isn't going to work. Let's go back to being the 13 colonies. Then, <laughs> then you're probably looking at the same thing. No, I, I totally agree. I sort, of, I sort of agree and disagree. I agree on the sense that, um, you know, I, I always have this pet theory that if, if the Cromwellian regime had lasted, that Oliver Cromwell would have the kind of status of George Washington in our national consciousness. Mm. 
as a sort of founding father, as a kind of benevolent military figure turned politician, turned first head of state, turned founding father figure. Yeah. Which obviously we, we don't have. But to, to disagree slightly, to push back slightly, um, what is interesting is that those very founding fathers themselves thought, even at the time in their era, in the in the later 18th century, that the British were woefully uneducated and uninterested in their own um, history, their own civil war and revolution. So there's this wonderful anecdote of, of a couple of the future presidents, um, uh, John Adams and uh, who's the other one? Uh, I remember it in a minute, but they they come over to um, England for a kind of gap year, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, a grand tour or whatever, uh, years before the revolution. And, and, and write, uh, John Adams writes in his diary these very moving words about when they go and visit the site, I think, of the Battle of Worcester, I think it is. And he he writes in his diary that that how what how scandalous it is that this site is just you know neglected and there aren't isn't a proper monument and there's no one there looking at it and how all Englishmen he says should go on pilgrimage there once a year because it's a more holy site than any of our churches. Wow. So that's the way that they saw it. So I do agree with you. I think we struggle now because it didn't you know, we have this idea of, well, Parliament won the war, but then the king came back anyway, so we don't need to bother yeah. with learning this period. And I am sympathetic to that idea. It is confusing. Um, but, you know, if, if we if we look back to, you know, those, those American founding fathers, they thought that this was, you know, fundamentally important, what had been achieved in the 1640s and 50s, and that it was the foundation for uh, their own achievements and their, their own, their own um, dreams for America were inspired, mm. you know, by, by what had been happening in England in the 1640s. I'd like to round off by our last opportunity to kind of give Cromwell a bit of a character uplift and it may be that it's not a character uplift that he's going to get I don't know but he's infamous in Ireland for Drogadar justified or not and Wexford um justified justified in the sense that anyone who reads up on this and studies Cromwell and studies this period cannot help but see that that was, you know, these were atrocities and that there was a dreadful, dreadful and unnecessary, potentially unnecessary loss of life. And Cromwell, I mean, it's a real stain on Cromwell's mm. reputation. So all of that, all of us who are historians of this period, you know, work on this and have to in, in confront this and, and work on it. And there's been some really fantastic recent scholarship. There's a new book actually out in this, literally this year called Cromwell in Ireland, New Perspectives, which is a whole series of essays from historians, from English and Irish historians, all about this. So yes, it is absolutely and justifiably a stain on his record, blot on his copybook. I guess all I'd say in to uh, not to not to expl- not to I guess justify what he did, but to explain it or contextualize it mm-hmm. is that you know as we said earlier, these each this was the third civil war by this stage that he's in Ireland, and. The stakes have got higher and higher and the, the body counts raised and raised and raised. And he is sent over there to, to squash a royalist uprising. And I think there is there is undoubtedly a very unattractive quality, not in Cromwell in isolation, but actually in, in pretty much most Englishmen at this time uh, were very anti-Irish. Mm-hmm. 
and most and very anti-Catholic in most cases. And although Cromwell was actually um, enormously tolerant in terms of his own religious beliefs and 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 famously so, um, his toleration did not extend to Catholics. Although he did have some Catholics amongst his friends, and he did work um, he did work with some Catholics in Ireland when they could work together politically. So again, as with as always with Cromwell, these aren't black and white bigoted views. Mm-hmm. There's there's flexibility built into these. But the problem with the the Irish at this point is that uh, the whole civil war, the first civil war, had started partly because there had been these rumoured reported atrocities in Ireland, particularly reported back in England that there are there are massacres of Protestants um, by Catholics, um, and then also during the war. There are Irish troops fighting with on the royalist side. There's this there's this fear that Charles I is going to bring in more Irish troops and Irish mercenaries. So, and the Irish, you know, are considered as a lower a lower form of of people, which is very shocking to us today, mm. understandably. But it was a common view at the time. And in terms of Cromwell's uh, treatment of the Irish, and then also once he was Lord Protector. Actually, unfortunately, he was continuing a a sort of approach to Ireland and a policy to Ireland that had been carried on by the government in London for, well, generations, several centuries, and continued after Cromwell as well. The resettlement of Irish people, the, you know, the moving them off their land, the, 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 the violence. So... And in terms of what he did at the specific sieges of Drogheda and Wexford, which were which were the, the, the awful um, losses of life, again they were technically within the rules of war at the time. Again, it sounds like a sounds like a kind of um, a, you know whitewashing, but uh, technically speaking, if a town had been offered terms of surrender, offered quarter, and then hadn't accepted it, then the besieging force was allowed to storm the town and. I say allowed, you yeah. know, under the it, international it was legal. It was legal and much, much more uh, uh, larger scale and, and horrible atrocities had happened throughout Europe during the Thirty Years' War, which is another piece of context we need to see what happened in Ireland as part of, which happened all the way through Europe in this in the sixth in the seventeenth century. And by being so ruthless with these two towns Another, I don't know, 12, 14, something like that, towns in Ireland um, surrender to Cromwell's forces uh, with no loss of life at all. So, you know, I think of it slightly as a, it's a bit of a kind of nuclear bomb option. It's a bit of a Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, yeah. approach. And it's the sort of thing that's going to be debated and debated and debated of course, forever. Of course, and, and quite rightly, and quite rightly. And it's, it's part, it's part, it's a very important part of this whole story and this whole picture. And you can't look at Cromwell squarely or write about him um, accurately as a historian without coming to, coming to uh, grips with it, very much so. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Do you feel better? Thank you for having me. I do, I do. That was enormously uh, therapeutic. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's shed quite a lot of light on a much maligned and divisive character. I'm a bit of a royalist at heart, and I'll probably stay that way. Um, and no <laughs> doubt fine. I'm going to get some comments and activity off the back of this. And uh, bring it, I say. It can't be as bad bring as it. the Spitfire episode for the grief bring we get on social media. <laughs> 
and we can be friends anyway. And as, as I would always try and end by saying, you know, the most important thing is that people are interested in this period and want to learn more about it. And that's why we parliamentarians and royalists are, are, are all friends with each other. We all belong to a lovely little community of 17th century enthusiasts. <laughs> Well, if you'd like a glimpse into that world, or frankly, just a damn good read, then you can start by buying any or all of Miranda's books. And we're going to have links to those in the History of Age bookshop. And you can and should also follow Miranda on Twitter at Miranda Malins. And you can check out her website at MirandaMalins.com. And we're going to have links to all those in the show notes as well. So once again, Miranda, thank you very much for bringing three civil wars and an execution's worth of rage to our podcast. Thank you, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel and you can follow Kyle at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you can really help us meet the cost of podcasting. £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye.